Welcome to the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a weekly public affairs broadcast produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, on occupied Anishinaabe territory in the homeland of the Métis Nation, in partnership with the Centre for Research on Globalization. Our shows air on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States and are podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we air two interviews relating to the faction of American power known as the neocons. Later in the show, we will hear a repeat broadcast of a January 2018 interview conducted by myself with writer, ecological campaigner, and deep state researcher Mark Rabinowitz on how the neocons and other forces are shaping the presidency of Donald Trump. But first, Global Research News Hour guest contributor Scott Price brings us an exclusive interview he recently conducted with Robbie Martin, journalist, musician, and creator of a documentary film about the rise and influence of the neocons in Washington, D.C. Here's that feature on the Global Research News Hour Summer Series. My film itself is essentially was tracking the neocon influence and how the neoconservatives from the Bush era that pushed the Iraq war, that constructed the blueprints of the Iraq war, how they also were the earliest pioneers pushing this Russiagate Cold War 2.0 mentality. Through the late 20th and early 21st century, the neoconservatives loomed large in American foreign policy. The war on terror, the war in Iraq, the Bush administration. In 2018, it may seem that their power and influence has waned, but in fact, Many of these neoconservatives still hold influence, and their legacy has had a much larger impact on politics and society. In this Global Research News Hour special, we talk with journalist, filmmaker, and musician Robbie Martin on his three part documentary, A Very Heavy Agenda. This film series covers the rise and continued influence of the neoconservatives. In part one, Robbie talks about the artistic and political influence for A Very Heavy Agenda and some of the early history of the War on Terror. Talking more broadly about the documentary, what was sort of the, the genesis of the idea for A Very Heavy Agenda? Uh, the, the documentary has a very uh, distinct style and you don't do a lot of editorializing. Uh, so what was the inspiration for all that? And... You know, why did you choose the kind of this topic and the kind of technique that you were using for for this documentary film? I think I probably should give a shout out to um, filmmaker Adam Curtis right off the top because um, I don't give him enough credit when I talk about the inspiration for this film. Uh, As you may know, or or maybe you're not familiar with it, but he made a, a film series called Power of Nightmares uh, during the Bush administration that was sort of charting the neoconservative influence in the Bush administration and before, and how they sort of mirrored the um, the Wahhabist, you know, Islamic, you know, fundamentalists and Al Qaeda figures um, by using what Adam Curtis described as the power of nightmares. That by concocting these nightmare fantasy scenarios, you could gain power, and people like Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld and and Wolfowitz. Um, we're able to do that by spinning these, you know, hysterical, fear-mongering tales about what would happen if a bioterror attack happened. What would, you know, what would happen if terrorists attacked the World Trade Centers? So, 
that was a big inspiration of, for me during the Bush administration. It, it sort of helped me become more politically aware. It made me question a lot of things after 9-11 and uh, having to do with the Iraq War. Um, but uh, over time, I just became sort of just, you know, oh, the neocons, um, they're the people who, you know, were mainly behind the Iraq War. They're sort of an evil class of uh, foreign policy um, makers in D.C. who really want war at every opportunity. And that's just sort of how I thought of them throughout the years. Um, and it wasn't until my sister, Abby Martin, and for those listening who aren't aware of this, my sister um, actually had a show on the Russian-owned television channel, Russia Today America, uh, out of D.C. Um, from the years around 2012 to, I think, early 2015. Um, so she had a show on, on RT for about three years. And while she was there, um, I remember having a conversation with her very early on saying, you know, um, that, you know, we have to be ready for when the U.S. government decides that they're going to get mad at the, what this channel is doing. Hmm. Because when she started working there in 2012, it didn't seem like there was any attention whatsoever to RT, this idea of Russian meddling, this idea of Russian propaganda. No one cared about it. In fact, U.S. officials actually at the time marginalized it. And even one of my characters in my film, Victoria Newland, says it has a very tiny audience. She's actually marginalizing it on a, during a Brookings panel um, in D.C. Now, that was the attitude back when my sister first started working there. But over time, um, we started seeing early signs of what appeared to be an information war being waged against the Russian government by shady actors inside the United States. And that may sound a little bit ironic, considering the way that we see everything through this lens now of Russian meddling, that everyone in the U.S. would describe RT as a form of information war now. That, you know, that's how everybody would describe it now. But back then, it was such a small channel. Um, it Barely anybody watched it. I mean, that was kind of more true, what they were saying back then, U.S. officials marginalizing it. Is that, what, that was more of the true narrative. It was a small channel. It had very little influence. But yet, um, you know, maybe just a year or two into her working there, maybe a year and a half, we really started to notice something strange happening in the United States where there was all this focus starting to accumulate towards Putin and Russia and why Russia was so bad. And it started more subtly, kind of in the background. Um, the Sochi Olympics, however, is sort of when we noticed it was almost like all these coordinated narratives started to really flood out of U.S. media channels um, and all this awareness all of a sudden about the Russian gay law, which as someone who's very adamantly pro-gay rights, I was bothered by it as well. But I mean, even at the time, I remember thinking, now this is an odd amount of focus towards the Russian gay law, when yet Saudi Arabia actually executes gays still, and, there, and there's hardly any talk about that in the U.S. media. What's actually happening here? So there were some early signs and sort of like what, you know, me just sort of my gut reaction and my sister's gut reaction to um, that climate at the time, wondering what was going on. And, of course, right after the Sochi Olympics is when the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine um, kind of boiled over to the point where there was, you know, walls of flaming tires all over Euromaidan, uh, basically a, a war zone. Um, and, of course, uh, the Ukrainian government um, fell due to a coup 
um, which many believe, including myself, was partially U.S.-sponsored um, by the U.S. State Department. And then things from there, um, Scott, just started to spiral out of control. And from the period between 2014 and 2018, um, it was like an exponentially um, rising climate of propaganda against Russia coming from the U.S. media. And, you know, when I made my film series, I didn't, you know, I made it before the election. So I didn't realize how hysterical it was going to get after the election. And frankly, I had any, I mean, I had no idea it was going to get this bad to the point that it's gotten now. And I know that doesn't quite answer your question about my inspiration, but um, that's, it's kind of a long answer to your question is, um, it, it, my film itself is essentially was tracking the neocon influence and how the neoconservatives from the Bush era that pushed the Iraq war, that constructed the blueprints of the Iraq war, how they also were the earliest pioneers pushing this Russiagate Cold War 2.0 mentality mm-hmm. and how it only took mm-hmm. you know, certain nudges and pushes and, and, um, and policy papers, and, and here we are. Um, they, they essentially got their way. And Russia has never been more demonized um, since the fall, you know, the fall of uh, communism and the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union. So um, that's, you know, so that's. Uh, I don't know if that was too long of an answer for your question, but that's uh, that sort was sort of my inspiration and in how I made it. But my sister was also kind of a part of the story because some of these neocons actually tried to smear her while she was working for RT. Right, and that, yeah. that's maybe a more literal answer to your question is that was the key inspiration for being like oh wait these neocons are still around they're waging some kind of you know cutting edge information war against russia that the obama administration doesn't seem to care about and they're out there trying to ruin my sister so those all those factors combined sort of coalesced at once and i'm like i have to do something about this because no one else is talking about this push um, what I saw is a propaganda push to try to push us into a kind of a war footing with Russia, whether you want to call it World War III or just, you know, an ideological uh, confrontation. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, some of the more uh, the details of some of these things we'll, we'll get into. Uh, and I don't want to get um, uh, too far into it because, you know, I want people to 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 watch your the documentary because I think it's it's so great and there's and especially as I'm 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 31 so I kind of the 9/11 thing really shaped myself and my generation in so many ways uh but even in watching this there's so many things that I forgot about or didn't even know about you know like we we kind of form these narratives and we don't really think about it or you know who's who's controlling this stuff and for what purposes um, but, uh, yeah, I think you give a good summation of, of that. Uh, but w- one of the things too, uh, just about the film itself is, um, you use a lot of like footage of these people. If it's one of the Kagans or, uh, um, uh, Bill, Bill Crystal or whomever, uh, was, uh, I mean, obviously the, this was a, a conscious decision to use, their own words so like uh, could you talk a bit about why you decided to do it that way because i think in watching the the how many hours it is of the uh, over the three parts you you get 
you, you kind of see the same themes coming up again, but it's from it's from them it's it's from these people themselves that are saying this stuff, right? Like, could you yeah. talk about like the power of that and why you decided to do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think at first um, I was really fascinated by the psychology of these key neoconservatives, and right. I was watching. At first, I didn't even know I was going to make a film. I was kind of in this weird place mentally. My sister had just been put through the ringer. She had over 200 basically hit piece stories written about her within the span of a week. Um, and I was just in this, you know, kind of depressed place, um, you know, checking in with her, making sure she was doing okay, you know, not, not you know, basically getting too stressed out from all this 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 media pressure and this barrage of negative stories. And so I was just watching these videos, basically, from the neocon think tank that I believe was behind, was behind the smear campaign against her. Um, and so I was watching videos from this think tank. They were called the Foreign Policy Initiative. And I quickly learned, maybe over a 48-hour period, oh, the Foreign Policy Initiative is actually a rebranded, reopened version of the project for the New American Century think tank, which was the you know most infamous neocon think tank that was behind the Iraq War. Um, once I realized that, um, then I just I was obsessed with watching these videos. I watched probably every single video on their YouTube channel, and the majority of them were incredibly boring, um, very dry. Um, and I was already in a depressed place, so you know it was kind of just putting me into this weird state where I was watching nothing but these dry foreign policy think tank videos for weeks on end. And finally, I got to Robert Kagan, and when I was listening to him, I it, it struck me differently than the way that most other neoconservatives would talk, because I perceived him as being more candid about the way American foreign policy has actually conducted itself and also more clever um, <clears throat> with the way that I perceived him as rebranding, repackaging neocon rhetoric for the Obama era. And once I saw this, I became fascinated with his psychology. Um, and I was already sort of fascinated with Bill Kristol's psychology, you know, going back to when I was a young man, when I would watch Fox News during, you know, the Iraq War um, I would watch Bill Crystal, and I, I found him fascinating back then because he seemed on a different level than most other, you know, war hawks that would go on Fox News. But it was Robert. It was really Robert Kagan, though, that made me think. You know, his own words are so fascinating and so candid, and so revealing, <clears throat> without adding any editorial content. That I wonder if this will work, if I present it, just simply at, in his own words. Um, and then the other reason, uh, if I'm being completely honest, I didn't feel confident at the time to actually add any of my own editorial narration. I kind of cringe sometimes at movies that do that too much, especially political documentaries. Without naming names or, you know, um, crapping on anyone, well, let's just say I watched a political documentary um, that had the word wars in the title, and I felt that the filmmaker himself was made himself the main character, and while the content of the film was great, talking about Yemen, Somalia, all these, um, how do I say it without revealing the title or the filmmaker, um, all these wars, hidden wars happening in all these other countries, the filmmaker right. made himself the main character, and I cringe so much at that that I kind of 
was in this position where I was like, I don't even know how to insert my own editorial point of view into this, other than my editing and the way I'm presenting all this footage. So when I made part one, it was out of necessity, mostly because I didn't know how to do that yet, and I didn't feel confident enough to do it. But then also, the footage I was grabbing was so compelling to me on its own, where I felt that, you know, maybe this could work, you know, just on its own. Like, I wasn't, when I was originally making it, I didn't even cross my mind to add narration. It was only until later where I was like, I need to release this and show people that I actually decided to add narration. But as you're saying, part one, I think that you're mostly talking about part one, has none, no narration whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, um, it's mostly just a collage of footage of these neoconservatives talking and conversing and revealing sort of how they truly think. Yeah, um, uh, like, so, so in talking about it, like how they, the neocons, uh, think and, and what their worldview sort of is, you know, I think a lot of listeners of CKW and the Global Research News Hour would be familiar when you say, you know, neocons and uh, Project for New American Century. But I think the the overriding perception is that they're a thing of the past, like that they were kind of they had their time with the Bush, uh, 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 Bush in the uh, in the uh, through the two thousands, and then they're gone. So why should people still be paying attention to the neocons in twenty eighteen? Well, that's a great question. I mean, and and you're right to say that the general perception is that they kind of got shamed out of existence uh, based on the failure, you know, quote unquote, the failure of the Iraq War and the amount of public pressure against that and how most people have come to the belief that it was a it was a disaster um, and the neocons are largely associated with that military uh, invasion and that frankly that massacre um, that was done completely for no logical reason whatsoever i mean unless we're talking about imperialistic aims the wmd's argument is complete bs everybody knows that now so their names were largely associated with the worst lies of the Bush administration. And my, that was my perception of it, too, until I started working on this documentary film, is that they had gone away and they weren't really a problem anymore. And even when I started to see some of the same faces pop up talking about Russia and how evil Putin was back in, like, 2014, I didn't personally think it was that big of a deal because I thought, well, these people are super marginalized, you know, who, who's really listening to them anymore? Obama's clearly not listening to them. Um, but that actually turned out not to be true. The Obama part is he actually was listening to them, um, as I sort of describe in my film. But um, I think one way to describe why uh, they're so important and they're still so influential is because they managed to, a very small handful of them, maybe less than a dozen figures, managed to convince the rest of um, what people describe as the D.C. blob, um, this sort of foreign policy consensus in D.C. Overall, uh, the neocons managed to rebrand themselves, massage their rhetoric, and make themselves seem less crazy in order to influence the larger D.C. foreign policy community into basically accepting and going along with almost all of their po- foreign policy platforms, with the exception of overtly wanting to invade Iran, which arguably that is the neocon prize, but 
see a lot of these smarter neocons like Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol and a lot of these neocons who managed to convince the blob, they have hidden and not been open about the fact that they want to overthrow the regime of Iran. That's one of, that's one of their foreign policy platforms they've sort of brushed under the rug. Because that's one of the, the reason I'm giving that example is because that's how they have managed to cross the, the, the aisle, so to speak, in D.C., and put a handout to the neoliberal think tanks and say, hey, we're kind of on the same side in this, and we all think Putin's bad, and let's you know, really go after him. Let's overthrow Assad. So these are things that the neocons managed to essentially convince and influence the rest of the D.C. foreign policy community to believe. So, yes, it's true that there are not that many actual literal neocons, but a lot of people now who are sort of anti-war, do work in anti-war or do foreign policy critique, they don't see much of a difference anymore between sort of the neoliberal foreign policy group in D.C., which is most of it, and the actual neocons anymore, because they have essentially merged um, in a nonpartisan fashion. And it's been very surreal to watch, especially after the 2016 election, when you actually saw neocons saying well, you should vote for Hillary. Um, for the first time ever, they all you know, said that we, you shouldn't vote for a Republican. Um, that's a, so I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I, I think just you know, to sum it up, it's because the neocons have influenced everybody. So now that they've been able to do that, you don't really need that many of them around you know, making that much trouble because everybody is carrying out their agenda, essentially. In this in this DC foreign policy think tank. Yeah, um, I think the way you kind of describe it in uh, maybe it's I don't know I don't know if you personally describe it, but uh, I, I wrote it down in my notes about how neoconservatism is almost like it was like a species and it kind of evolved over those over the last twenty years in a way. Uh, so I think like what you're talking about how there's this shift to, to Hillary and. And but I mean that that shift is more that the the neoconservative line really became the mainstream line, whereas you know maybe in the early two thousands like there was a larger um, perception like oh these like yes they were in the White House but these people are also crazy right yeah. <laughs> whereas now it's like it's kind of the mainstream um, which is which is which is yeah quite quite scary um which which is something i think we'll we'll talk about in in a little bit but um um kind of what i was talking about a bit before what i referenced was that you know i was a teenager when 911 happened and it really shaped my generation and the world that i'm i'm living in now uh but as i was watching the 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 three part documentary there were several things that I was like kind of blown away by that, how these things kind of just went down the memory hole. And I want to talk about those things because several of these things I vaguely kind of remember now, but for some odd reason I had totally forgotten about them and they're not really within the wider narrative of like 9-11 and the war on terror. So the first one is that how right after 9-11, several of these neocons, uh, I think it's Don and Fred Kagan, went on TV and radio for uh, kind of immediately after, for at least, you know, maybe a 24-hour, 48-hour period after 9-11, and basically blamed Palestinians for the attack. And were basically outright calling for the U.S. to attack Palestine. And even, yeah. even saying that, you know, uh, 
they had no evidence, but we should just go and attack them. So could you talk about what happened there and, 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 and what was the effect there? Like it, it, I mean, everyone kind of forgets about this, but like what happened there and what, what, what do you think the effect of that was? We just opened up a really big can of worms with that question because that's <laughs> well to fully answer that it would require a, a, a totally separate interview. But I'll do right. my best to to answer it in this the short time that we have. Yeah, what your talk describing is what I would say is the neocons slipping up and revealing too much of an early iteration of their script than the rest of the consensus was ready to reveal or get on board with. And perhaps even they jumped ahead with something that the rest of the neocons already decided we can't go there. Um, because, and this is important to know, is that Don Kagan is one of the only three authors credited as writing Rebuilding America's Defenses, the infamous paper that PNAC released that says we need a new Pearl Harbor, a catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Um, Don Kagan is someone who's just mostly an obscure figure in this, but um, I'd like to believe that if he was saying that on the radio within 24 hours of 9-11, uh, that it's some, it was something being heavily discussed within that community behind the scenes. And him and his son, Fred Kagan, are two of the most intellectual, influential neoconservatives in D.C. Fred Kagan is behind the Iraq surge. He was also behind the Afghanistan surge for Obama, uh, directly working under David Petraeus. Um, so these are not just like random neocons. I, it's important to stress that they are some of the most influential neocon brain trust like type people in D.C., even though they're still relatively obscure. They're not household names. So to hear both of them saying that we need to clean out Palestine with U.S. Delta Force raids in the full panoply of U.S. military tools and arsenal, um, it's a very shocking thing to hear. Even though, you know, I, I've long believed that neocons are some of the most evil people on the planet, um, that even, was even surprising for me to hear, that they went ahead and openly said that the U.S. military should do that. And, actually, in, their, in the broadcast, they make it clear that they don't even care who's behind 9-11, which is strange. They say that if we run around tracing the actual perpetrators, we're just going to be, like, wasting our time. We won't get anywhere. So what they are saying is that we should just go attack all these countries anyways, because even if they're behind it or not, they hate us and want to kill us. And Palestine was one of their primary targets to retaliate against um, in, in response to 9-11. Now, it's, that's very strange when you look at the day of 9-11, and I've actually done a podcast about this. So I call it the Palestinian frame-up on 9-11. There were four separate incidences that were run throughout U.S. media going throughout the day of 9-11 um, that were attempting to blame Palestinians for the attacks before bin Laden became the, the primary culprit that the U.S. media latched onto. Um, so I find that very strange. Um, and I, I am not going to try to explain it here during this interview, but you can, you know, you can look into that. It's all documented. Um, the news media played footage of Palestinians allegedly celebrating the attacks right. in the middle yeah. of a national emergency at 12 p.m., um, while you know, thousands of people were still missing during the World Trade Center attacks. So this is the kind of stuff the U.S. media was doing. So it was very interesting for me to see neocons actually piggybacking on that and saying we should attack Palestine.
Um, that's a and that's a rare thing, I think, to find neocons slipping up that badly. Um, and I and I guess when I, I and I'm I find that clip particularly fascinating because it's the, really the only one of the only ones like that out there. And to my knowledge, I'm the first one to find it by combing through all these archives. I've never heard of it before. Never even heard of any neocons saying that before on record. Um, and then also something else interesting Don Kagan brings up um, in the in the recording, and maybe you were going to mention this next, but I'll just say it because it's so weird, is he says, what would have happened, and keep in mind this is 9-12-01, one day after 9-11. He says, what would have happened if the terrorists had anthrax on that plane? Right, yeah. And on October 5th, um, weaponized anthrax was sent through the U.S. mail. While the Bush administration was already inoculated with Cipro, the... Um, the uh, antibiotic taken to prevent anthrax infection. So there's a lot of interesting and frankly very scary questions that are raised just by that single clip. Um, and I'm to this day, it's still a, it's still a mystery to me. That was part one of the Global Research News Hour special with Robbie Martin on his documentary series, A Very Heavy Agenda, that explores the rise and continued influence of the neoconservatives. Part two will air next week, where we will explore the anthrax attacks, the role of vice in spreading U.S. propaganda. You can buy or stream A Very Heavy Agenda at averyheavyagenda.com. Music for this special provided by Fluorescent Gray, a.k.a. Robbie Martin. For the Global Research News Hour, I'm Scott Price. My name is Michael Welch, and you're listening to the Global Research News Hour, airing on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is available for download from the website globalresearch.ca. We just heard part one of an exclusive interview with Robbie Martin on the rise and influence of the neocons in Washington, D.C. Part two will air next week. For the remainder of the program, we will hear an interview with Mark Rabinowitz, which aired on the program back in January of 2018. Mark Rabinowitz is a Eugene-based writer, political activist, ecological campaigner, and permaculture practitioner. He publishes oilempire.us as well as jfkmoon.org. So uh, he's been a past guest of the show, and about a year ago we spoke about the, the incoming Trump administration. And so we're going to have a one-year retrospective uh, on the inauguration and uh, what it forebodes for the future. So welcome back to the Global Research News Hour, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. So, uh, yes, we've spoken on this f- show about uh, this uh, fracturing of what they call the deep state, which is an entity more or less encompassing elements of Wall Street as well as the intelligence apparatus of the U.S., there seemed to be a faction that favored Donald Trump and a faction that seemed to be favoring Hillary and that we seem to be witnessing over the last year something of a, a, a war between them. Um, could I get your thoughts about what we know about those dual components of the ruling elite and, and what distinguishes them from each other? Well, the different factions of the deep state or as President Eisenhower called it the military-industrial complex, have different tactical opinions over how to manage the empire. Uh, You have the Trump faction, uh, victorious for now. Uh, It's worth remembering that former Vice President Dick Cheney endorsed 
Donald Trump's campaign, whereas the Bush family uh, endorsed the Clinton campaign. And these are roughly comparable to the major factions. You have the powers that be that think that diplomacy should be used as a fig leaf for military adventurism versus the neocons surrounded by Donald Trump. Michael Flynn was part of this, but he is gone, who think that naked aggression is a more appropriate response to global conditions. Interesting. They both agree that the U.S. should be dominant. They just have different approaches on how this should be done. Hmm. Sort of like the fist in a velvet glove approach versus the baseball bat across the face approach. Exactly. Okay. I, now, uh, sorry? One major shift that few people seem to have predicted over the last year is the people surrounding Trump were not apparently as effective as one would expect an incoming presidential administration to be. Uh, the new book that's out by journalist Michael Wolf, uh, Fire and Fury, made the assertion that the Trump campaign didn't actually expect to win the election, or win, quote-unquote, with voting machines, but regardless of what happened, they got the job. So that is a partial explanation why they were not ready to appoint officials in all different agencies and assistant and deputy undersecretaries and the whole bureaucracy, um, a reason that the administration has been somewhat chaotic, to put it politely. Interesting. Well, when then was did Trump become the chosen one? Because he wasn't the only Republican contender. Why, why was, it, was there this settling around Trump? Was that... Uh, um, was that kind of like a, a late in the campaign decision because of the uh, the Democrats' Pied Piper strategy, uh, or I mean, was, was there another Republican candidate who would have been chosen? I, I mean, I'm just wondering when, when was it the uh, an eleventh hour decision to to hover behind Trump, or was this going back uh, quite a distance? Well, the Trump campaign tapped into a lot of discontent uh, that the Jeb Bush campaign was mercifully unable to access. And I think there were 17 different candidates for the Republican nomination, most of whom were not terribly serious. But the Trump campaign tapped into some clever discontent. Uh, they had very good media messaging, but there was a genuine sense of alienation among a lot of the Republican base, and for good reason. But picking Trump as the supposed solution for this, in some ways, to call it a bad joke is an understatement. There was also the problem of the Clinton campaign being a extremely dysfunctional um, response on the Democratic side. There are some who claim that Bernie Sanders would have done better, and... I'm certainly sympathetic to that, but unfortunately, Sanders did not represent the type of point of view that the national security state would be, would have been able to tolerate. So the idea that Sanders would have been a 
more viable candidate on the Democratic side, I don't find credible. There's certainly a lot of good evidence that uh, that Sanders won the Democratic no- or would have won the Democratic nomination if if the Democrat if the DNC had been playing uh, if it had been a fair fight and not weighted in favor of Hillary. Maybe so, maybe not, but there would have been probably more media campaign against the socialist Bernie Sanders if he had done well in some of the bigger states. And then there were there were some states that perhaps the voting machines tipped the balance a couple of points. There are some who claim that happened in Massachusetts, but there are other states like California where it wasn't even close. And I'm certainly more sympathetic to Bernie Sanders than Hillary Clinton, but I don't think that either really had much of a message on the need to cut the military budget or recognize that we have reached the limits to growth on a finite planet, and therefore that changes all of our economic assumptions, including the messaging from the Sanders campaign. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, you know some of the these uh, the individuals who are allied with each faction? I mean, you mentioned the. Uh, um, you know, Dick Cheney and and Trump. Uh, you know, Cheney supporting Trump. Uh, the neocons, as it were. But I mean, uh, Ro- Robert Kagan, the author of the Project for a New American Century, is your qu- quintessential neocon, it seems to me. And he was backing Hillary. Uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, a Republican, was both backing Hillary and uh, uh, John Negroponte. Uh, these. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's. Uh, it seems a little bit uh, I'm a little bit unclear about some of these uh, cleavages. The Clinton campaign was certainly technical, technologically competent. If the Clinton campaign had been given the job of president, they would have come into office making sure that all their various appointments would have been filled by competent technocrats. The Clintons had been in the White House before and they were not going to wonder you know, where the light switches were in the room. They were well-placed to come into power and run as a well-oiled machine, whereas the Trump campaign really had very little idea what they were doing. Some of the neocons may have had some sympathy for some of the militarism behind the Trump campaign, but they also realized that Donald Trump is, to put it mildly, a loose cannon and not at all competent for the job, and in some ways even more dangerous due to this unfamiliarity with what he's supposed to do. And it won't surprise me if he is impeached or forced to resign under grounds of ill health or some similar excuse. But the national security state the military-industrial complex is not going to leave office if Trump is forced out of office or impeached if the Democrats take over the Congress at the end of this year. Where does the the sort of uh, native or primitive nationalism fit into the picture? Because it sounds like you're, or at least the way it's generally portrayed, is the, the, the Clinton faction or the more globalist or, or global neoliberal-oriented and that Trump was, you know, I mean, a big factor for him was the criticism of trade deals like NAFTA, but, you know, along the lines of, you know, 
you know, we need to make America great again, and getting rid of these trade deals would be a big panacea. Well, the globalist nationalist are labels that obscure some deeper truths, which is, you know, Trump has real estate deals all over the world, his Make America Great hats aren't even made in America, he is kowtowing towards numerous regimes all over the world for money laundering, for real estate deals, uh, we could talk about Russia and what is or isn't true about that and some of that has yet to come out. The Clintons clearly were in favor of NAFTA, uh, but it's not like the people behind Trump didn't want corporate power in the financial system to be locked down at the border either. It's more of a pandering to parts of the United States that suffered greatly under NAFTA as other parts of Canada and Mexico suffered in different ways under NAFTA. So it's not that they're calling for relocalization of production. It's more using it as an excuse to scapegoat. So, yeah, you mentioned Russia. And, I mean, there's this big uh, scandal, the, the infamous Russiagate scandal, which, uh, you know, there have been uh, plenty of... Uh, you know, astute observers, uh, veteran intelligence professionals for sanity, uh, you know, people like uh, Bill Binney and, and uh, Raymond McGovern, who have uh, you know made very strong uh, arguments that uh, this whole RussiaGate uh, scandal is is really just a, a pretense for taking down Trump, and that there's no substance to it. It's it's kind of like a, a modern day version of the weapons of mass destruction style uh, deception, which uh, facilitated the war in Iraq. Um, what do you make of the whole Russiagate saga and, uh, and, and who's behind it and why? Well, the aspect of it I find most interesting is a number of years ago when Mr. Trump was only in real estate, he burned his bridges with U.S. banks because of his bankruptcy and poor business practices. Uh, he was blacklisted for getting more loans for his real estate scams and had to reach out to Russian money interests to finance some of his deals. I suspect whatever truth there is in the Russia story with Trump will be more about that than about hacking of the voting machines from Russia. Uh, if you look at the work of Greg Palast and others who have investigated election fraud in the United States, um, the voting machine scandal is more likely to come from Republican hackers than from the Russians, and that is an inconvenient truth which calls into question the legitimacy of so-called American democracy, which is a reason why the Democrats and the media, which is looking for an excuse to get rid of Trump before he blows up the world, uh, is so far been unwilling to examine. Hmm. Now you're you're as convinced as ever, like as you know, maintained uh, about a year ago when you're talking about peak blame. I think uh, that Trump is being installed effectively as a scapegoat to uh, take the fall in the wake of uh, uh, a collapse of the economy. Uh, is that? Uh, 
you know, that, that, that viewpoint hasn't changed uh, much or has been reinforced. Well, when you consider the functioning of a, the complex global industrial economy, it's ultimately rooted in the ability of physical resource flows more than digital dollars or digital euros or any other currency. Ones and zeros have their place, but it's the physical flow of stuff, and particularly of energy, that makes an economy possible. Um, conventional oil and gas has clearly passed its peak about a decade ago globally, and the main thing that's been holding the balance since has been what the geologists call unconventional fuels, tar sands in Canada, fracking in the United States, uh, offshore oil and gas, which is much more energy intensive than the good stuff that was drilled decades ago. How long this can continue is a matter of some dispute among the geologists, and we'll see which ones turn out to be correct. But the bottom line is fracking delayed rationing. Fracking has probably peaked in the United States. It's barely being done anywhere else in the world, more due to geological problems than the fact that fracking is toxic and messy and expensive. And as fracking declines further, we are likely to see the arrival of permanent energy rationing. This may happen during the Trump administration. It may take longer than that. We'll see. But it's clearly on the horizon. The industry is well aware of this. And the military establishment, the smarter parts of it anyway, have been studying the potential for this for decades. If it wasn't for fracking, this would have come during the Obama administration, and he probably would have left office uh, in disgrace rather than in relative uh, triumph. No, there was a recent article by the Russian-American engineer and commentator Dmitry Orlov uh, that pointed out that 2017 was a, a massive disappointment for oil and, and gas exploration with uh, new discoveries only offsetting 11% of hydrocarbon production, which is unprecedented since the Second World War. So that's, uh, and, you know, we're seeing that uh, sort of making an impact on the whole uh, uh, sanctions regime. I mean, his what he was uh, pointing to was that with all that glut created by fracking, that they seemed to think that which pushed energy prices down, they thought that they could cripple and and uh, replace of supplies coming from Gazprom in Russia. And today, or in fact, I, I think uh, a couple of days from now, you're going to have a, a, a tanker of oil going to Boston from Gazprom. So, so much for, and uh, like li liquid natural gas uh, is uh, not going to offset Russian gas. Uh, no way. Uh, to So the sanctions uh, regime is, is probably going to turn into a tragic and embarrassing failure. So, well, in the United States, uh, nat conventional natural gas peaked in 1973, and since about 2000, conventional natural gas in the United States has dropped roughly in half, and now more than half, more than 60% actually, 
of U.S. natural gas is from fracking. Now, the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example, uh, put a plank in the Democratic platform a year and a half ago saying that fracking needs to be stopped because it's toxic, it causes earthquakes due to the deep well injection and has other problems for local communities who have to endure it in their neighborhoods, and this is true. But without fracked gas, cold communities such as Boston or Vermont or Chicago, Manitoba, Ottawa, Montreal, etc., are going to have a very difficult time keeping their cities warm in the winter. I've been using solar electric panels since 1990. They're great, but they're going to have a really difficult time being used to heat cold northern cities in the wintertime. And there is almost no discussion about this in the political system, and it's a looming challenge that not only is it not being worked on technically, but there's barely any consciousness that this is a looming threat to the continuity of our society. There's no way to confront that threat in a way that's going to make certain people money. Well, if cities become too cold to keep plumbing continuing, uh, money will be the least of our problems. Mm -hmm. Now, we could reallocate the resources for endless war towards figuring out how to keep societies functioning on the energy downslope. Maybe that would work. Maybe it would be too little too late. But this has not got any constituency on the left, on the right, on the Democratic side, the Republican side, even the Green Party is not talking about it. Just like in Canada, it has virtually no political constituency either. Um, one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in deep politics in the national security state is because the resources for our collective survival on planet Earth are locked up in the military-industrial complex. Um, most federal research and development in the United States goes for the war machine, as if we don't know how to commit war any better than we've figured out over the last several decades. And we need to shift the talent, the money, the physical resources towards things that will serve our great-grandchildren as opposed to more ways to blow up the world. And I think we all know this at some level, some of us more than others, but the threats, the warmongering, plans for upgraded nuclear weapons that both Obama and Trump supported, these and other abnormal forms of domination are in the way of our collective response to the energy and environment crises that are the real threats to the 21st century. The Professor Peter Dale Scott had pointed out in his writings that from 1961 to 1981, no American president had served a full two terms in office. And uh, he indicated that this was related to efforts to govern and not just be a puppet of higher forces, you know, where there was some kind of a, a, you know, confrontation with the deep state, as it were. I definitely get the impression that Donald Trump is pushing the limits of what he's allowed to do as puppet-in-chief, hence 
the Russiagate and, and other scenarios. When you compare Trump with Presidents Kennedy through Carter, which presidential takedown seems to be the best indication of things to come? Well, Carter or Nixon is probably more likely as a paradigm. Uh, Kennedy stood up to the national security state, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, whereas Trump is pushing for even more militarism than his predecessors and is, you know, he's not the first president to threaten nuclear war, but I think he is the first president to openly threaten nuclear war at the U.N. uh, General Assembly, which he did last year, threatening to launch an attack on North Korea, which is incredibly dangerous. Uh, There's probably not language that describes how dangerous that is. Uh, If that happens, that upsets the apple cart for big business. If we have a nuclear war, uh, all bets are off on what happens after that. Mm. Nixon is probably a better parallel, given that he overreached in some of his power, and the deep state removed him from office. Uh, One story that is actually somewhat reassuring in a bizarre way is as Nixon was winding down in office, he became somewhat psychologically disturbed, and the military high command became concerned that he was thinking of launching a nuclear war out of spite. So the Secretary of Defense sent a message to the command saying, do not obey unusual orders from the White House, which translated into English meant, if Nixon orders the nukes to be launched, don't do it. So a couple weeks ago, Mr. Trump said that he had a big button on his desk that was more powerful than the one in Korea, my guess is if Trump spontaneously wakes up one day in a bad mood and orders an attack on North Korea, he might find his button doesn't actually work, that the military would refuse to follow his orders. This is speculation, and we hope that it never gets tested, but there's a limit to the power of any president, whether it's someone who is competent, like Kennedy, or someone who is incompetent, like Trump. Uh, they are, it's, in some ways, it's a ceremonial position, and the real power is held by the generals and the spies who do not leave office every four years. I take it you don't recommend that activists side with either faction of the ruling elite or align themselves with Hillary-aligned social movements. How do you think responsible community members inside and outside America should capitalize or integrate the presidential drama with the task of sustaining a livable planet and a viable future? Well, part of the problem is we are taught that the liberal side has to defeat the conservative side, or if you're on the conservative side, you need to defeat the liberal side. This party has to defeat that party. The whole us against the other side is part of the divide and conquer that keeps us from creating a society that has the potential to survive the challenges that we're faced with. So it's important to watch the unfolding drama of Trump versus the Democrats versus the Republicans versus this versus that 
but regardless of that, we all are going to have to meet our community's needs more locally on the neighborhood level, on the regional level. These are places where you're more likely to make an impact than hoping that a distant politician in another time zone will respond to your um, Facebook petition or whatever. So here in Oregon, we have done a lot more of this than most states in the country, yet we grow 5% of our food. When I've been in Canada, I've been astounded to see that most of the grocery stores I've gone into have most of their food from the United States of America. Uh, the more we relocalize production, that we build community resilience, that we learn to transcend some of the philosophical dis differences that keep neighbors from working cooperatively together, the more resilient we will be not only against energy disruptions and climate disruptions, but we will be less uh, subject to distant political decisions that try to control the way we live. Mark Rabinowitz, I, I really appreciate the way you, you frame these big picture topics, uh, both uh, in this conversation and on your websites. Uh, I, I want to thank you very much for uh, this uh, check-in and uh, hope to have uh, another conversation with you soon. Uh, can I just add one final Oh, of course. Thought, which is uh, when Trump gave a speech to the UN a couple months ago calling for war against North Korea, um, it reminded me of Kennedy's second and final speech to the UN in 1963, where he called off the Cold War and the arms race and urged a globally cooperative trip to the moon with the Soviet Union. And I recommend your listeners to uh, listen and read this at my website, jfkmoon.org, because uh, that shows some of the potential that if we had good leadership and backed by a aware public, we could use our resources for endless war towards peaceful cooperation on our round finite planet. Well said. Mark Rabinowitz, thank you very much. Thanks again. That was Mark Rabinowitz, Eugene-based writer, political activist, and ecological campaigner, and permaculture practitioner, publisher of, as you just heard, jfkmoon.org, and also the site oilempire.us. That was writer, ecological campaigner, and deep state researcher Mark Rabinowitz from a January 2018 interview for this program, the Global Research News Hour. Before that, we heard part one of an exclusive interview with Robbie Martin about his documentary on the rise and influence of the neocons. Part two will air next week. Interviews were conducted by guest contributor Scott Price and myself. Music was by Robbie Martin. The Global Research News Hour will return next week with more special summer programming. My name is Michael Welch.